I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Stay tuned. I wish I could remember which Keeping Democracy Alive guest urged Americans to think with history. For if we just look at the snapshot of the now, we really don't know who we are or even where we are. For the most blatant example of how and why not knowing history is a problem, just look to the Middle East today. The people of Palestine and Gaza and the West Bank are no strangers to history. They've been living it every day for at least the past 75 years. But without knowing this history, one might feel dumbfounded as to why there is a Hamas or what led to the horrendous attack of October 7th. It was unjustified, yes, but it didn't suddenly come from nowhere. And the Trumpists, which have come to dominate the Republican Party, they didn't spring up from nowhere either. Without knowing history, there's no way we can find the right tools to successfully fight the author authoritarian, racist far right of today. Of the minority of Americans that read books at all, my guess is only a small minority of that universe enjoys reading history. It's all there for us to learn. This history of racism in America, the longing for a strong white man hero on horseback to take full charge and just fix everything. We need to find a way out of the incredibly serious threat to democracy that's still rampant Trumpism poses as we head into the next election. Teaching history at a university is one thing, but actually becoming a remarkably popular historian is something unusual and pretty great. Our guest today is that person. Heather Cox Richardson is a professor of American history who pens a widely read daily newsletter called Letters from an American. Professor Richardson teaches 19th century American history at both the undergraduate and graduate level of Boston College. Her early work focused on the transformation of political ideology from the Civil War to the presidency of Theodore Roosevelt. It examined issues of race, economics, westward expansion, and the construction of the concept of the Amer an American middle class. Hey, I'm old enough to remember when we had a middle class. Her current book, just out this fall, is Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America. And she's been on, on a book tour to promote it. We'll focus on that book and touch on a topic that fascinates me, an earlier book, How the South Won the Civil War. Regular, well, thank you so much for being with us, Professor Richardson. It's a joy to be here. Regular listeners know I've been arguing that though they lost militarily, History has shown that Southern culture and politics actually has come to nearly dominate all of America, tragically, I must say. And there are a lot of books on the incredibly fascinating and complex history of America. The, the current book, Democracy Awakening, who is your target audience? What was your intent on writing it? The idea originally behind writing that book was to try and explain in short, easy essays the questions that people ask me every day. How do the parties switch sides? What does it mean to be a liberal? Um, the, uh, what was the Southern strategy? You know, sort of the, the larger questions about American history and how we got here. But what I realized pretty quickly was that what people really ask me most often is, how did we get here? Where are we, yes. and how do we get out? And so that book became, at first, a, short, a series of short 30 essays on, um, on those questions.
questions and on how we got here, where we are, and how we got out. But it qui- I quickly realized that what it really talked about was how a democracy abandons its primary values and turns instead to authoritarianism through the use of language and history. So it became a much bigger book than I originally set out to write. Mm-hmm. Well, there's so much to it, and there, there's so many. You cover a lot of ground in a short period of, uh, in a short space, and it's impressive. And you know, here we are today in uh, the mid 2020s, and we have something called populism. And it, it, populism is one thing. There's a great American tradition of what was called prairie populism, which certainly leaned left, largely in the 19th century, and well before that were the Shays and Whiskey Rebellions. Average working citizens back then, after the War of Independence, felt left behind, ignored, without political power, uh, without economic power. So fast forward to the 21st century, and the word populism has come to be equated with Trumpism, as you say, a desire for authoritarianism. We've seen left populism in the Bernie Sanders and back in 1976 with the Fred Harris for President campaign. That was a significant traditional left-leaning populism. How has the right, not just here, but in Eastern Europe as well, come to own the term populism? How, how was the populist impulse manipulated to become anti-democratic authoritarianism? I would like to know. <laughs> So I love this question. And first of all, I won't talk about anything but the United States, which is the area in which I'm trained. I really sure. can't speak authoritatively about anywhere else. But I love this question because people use the term populist to mean any number of things that they either like or don't like. Yeah. And I would like to step back for that just a minute and suggest that when I hear the word populism, what I see is actually in part a reflection of my own work as uh, somebody who studies ideas. But as a snapshot of history at a time where a group of people recognize that they have been sold a bill of goods mm-hmm. and they have turned against that bill of goods, but at the same time they are still echoing its uh, the, the rhetoric that got them to the point of believing in that bill of goods. So let let me explain what I mean by that. Sure. If you look at the rise of Trumpism, for example, in 2015-2016, what you see is a group of people who absolutely are motivated on the one hand by the sense that the middle class has been hollowed out and they are falling behind economically. People forget that Donald Trump was the most moderate Republican on economic issues in 2016. He called for better and cheaper health care. He called for bringing back manufacturing. He called for promoting infrastructure. He called for fairer tax laws. But at the same time, he also pushed the racism and sexism that had been such a hallmark of the Republican Party since at least 1968. So Mm -hmm. that, you know, at the one hand, they are very forward-looking economically, but they're backward-looking culturally. And the same is absolutely true of the 1890s populists. But the trick from there is figuring out as a leader which side of that that you're going to jump with. Are you going to go with the forward-looking, hey, we need to clean up this government so it it responds to ordinary people? Or are you going to go with the culture wars that say, hey, we're actually going to attack in the 1890s, for example, uh, the the populist movement was extraordinarily anti-Semitic. Are we going to go that direction? And that, so so I, when I hear the word populist, and I've read all those gazillion books on what is a populist, and at the end of the day, they're like, well, it's this and this and this and this and this and this and this, and sometimes this, and I think, that's a grab bag of everything. When I look at it, I see it more as a symptom that a society is undergoing a dramatic shift 
And the question is, what is that shift going to lead to going forward? One of the aspects of populism these days, of course, is is racism, which was here well before Trumpism. It's been here from the beginning, and it was powerful in the 19th and 20th centuries with the redemption movement against Reconstruction and the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, and then had a spokesperson in George Wallace. And then Nixon, of course, as you mentioned, had his very successful Southern strategy. My figuring is that there's a solid 30% of the population that's, that's not going to move off that platform. 30% just is kind of racist like that. My question to you is, since the North forced the Southern nation to live under the militarily victorious North, is that culture, that 30%, is it here to stay? Is it a permanent fixture? So it's really interesting you pick 30%, because in fact, political scientists will tell you that about 20 to 30% of a society will adhere to a reactionary movement and will not let it go. And when people talk about this current moment of Trumpism and say, you know, what should we do about, you know, our uncle who refuses to budge away from his support for the former president, the the answer is, you know, he's probably part of that 20 to 30 percent that is largely unreachable. Mm. But there's there is a larger question behind what you're suggesting, and that is, of course, in our uh, United States of America, issues of race and ethnicity have been embedded since before there was a United States of America. This has been here since the first year. European dropped anchor off of the North American Mm. continent. Mm. But the question about whether or not it's going to dominate our society, I think, comes down to to the reality that that if 20 to 30 percent of our people are going to double down on a reactionary political movement, and that doesn't necessarily have to be based in race, although it has been in America Mm. and present, there are 70 to 80 percent of people who will not double down on that. So the question is how, as a society, you manage to make sure that those 70 to 80 percent are the ones calling the, the governmental shots rather than the 30, 20 to 30 percent. So does it have to always be this way? Well, it's certainly been a constant through our society, and I would anchor that in the idea that there are always some people in the United States, again, which is all I'll speak about. Right who actually really believe that some people are better than others and have the right to rule those other people. And then there are other people who say, no, actually, we should all be treated equally before the law and have an equal say in our government. And those two themes have been at war in our society since the beginning. And at times, the one dominates, the 1850s, for example, the elite slave owners certainly believed that they had the right to rule over everybody else, and so did the robber barons in the 1890s, and so did certain people in the 1920s, and certainly I think we could find some people who believe that today. Yet at the same time, there's always been a group of people pushing back and saying, no, 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 that's not what democracy is about. The question is how and when do they exert their ideology to the point that it takes over our governmental system and makes democracy become more real. And we've had those moments in our history as well, you know, most notably for our generation after World War II, when, in fact, you have Superman telling school kids on very popular posters that anybody who discriminates based on religion or race is un-American, and they should be told that they are not welcome here. That's really different than you're hearing now, for example, in schools where we're banning books that that 
um, people find offensive. So the question for, I think, going forward in our moment is how do we ma- uh, magnify those voices that want to preserve democracy rather than those that smaller group of reactionaries who want to return us to a society where a few people get to rule over the rest of us? Well, democracy does involve tension, doesn't it? Tension between many different it, it, forces. Go ahead. It, it does, but it's but it can be a creative tension yes. as well as a destructive tension. And it's those moments when it's a creative tension that we get the expansion of democracy. And that's one of the things that I feel like we're seeing around us now is people who previously were sort of feeling thrust back against the ropes going, uh-oh, what am I going to do next? Stepping forward and saying, well, standing back against the ropes clearly is not an option. Therefore, I better get involved. And as I do that, hey, I've got some pretty good ideas over here. Yes, indeed. And so, yeah, it can be a, a creative, a positive tension for sure. And that's one of the aspects of democracy. And the fact that there is racism, that there has been racism all along, it kind of, as you say, debunks the myth that the Civil War released the nation from the grip of this old oligarchy and expunged the sins of the founding. So what about the outcome in the decades that followed the war against uh, Southern uh, nationalism, what, what did that reveal about how and why the Old South not only survived in the West, but thrived throughout the country? So I have to, uh, to pick up something you said there as we get into that. The idea that the Civil War had expunged the, the sin of slavery was really palpable in 1865. The idea, you know, the biblical idea that you had to to pay for a sin with sacrifice, and the idea that the United Hmm. States had Hmm. lost so many people in such horrible ways, many people really believed that, in fact, the nation had been born again. And it was Uh such a palpable moment. I love that you called that out. But what happened after the Civil War was not, in fact, what people in the United States, the Union, believed was going to happen. And that is, they believed that if they were forgiving to the South, if they welcomed white Southerners as well as black Southerners, who were, of course, allies to the United States, back into the country after the war, they would support this idea of equality before the law. They would support the idea of a government that worked for ordinary people rather than concentrating wealth among a very Mm. few people. And it, you know, it was extraordinarily popular in the North, both among Democrats and Republicans. And they fully expected that Southerners, white Southerners, as well as black Southerners, would accept that as well. But what they didn't see was the expansion of the United States into the American West, west of the Mississippi, during the Civil War, immediately before, but certainly during the Civil War, was going to change that equation altogether. So even though the war was fought in the uh, mm-hmm. between the North and the South, it was really fought over the West. And one of the things that the United States does really quickly during the war is they try to bring in as organized territories or as states all of the American West, so that by the end of 1865, the American West looks very much like it does in the present. The the Dakotas haven't been split in two, which is going to happen in 1889, and we don't have the admission yet of Wyoming, which is going to happen after the war as well. So, uh, not the admission, the carving off of Wyoming. But otherwise, the lines of today's current states look virtually the same in 1865 as they do today, and that had not been the case before the war. So what happens after the war is that 
a number of uh, Southerners move into the American West, into a region that itself had been characterized by a small group of fairly wealthy white men mm. overseeing and, and, and ruling over indigenous Americans primarily, Mexicans, Chinese people, um, over in that period, which had established this idea that there were some people that were better than others. And that ideology meshed very closely with that of those Southerners who were pouring into the American West. And when the, you know, when I talked in the uh, How the South Won the Civil War book, I talked about the South winning the Civil War, not in terms of its economy or its military strength, but rather with the idea that because there was no attempt to get rid of the ideology of the American South with the idea that, you know, of course people would choose to have a better government and would choose to have a stronger economy, uh, as the North thought. Instead, what happened was that ideology moved quite naturally into the South, and it lived there with the image of the American cowboy, the idea of somebody who rejected rejected a government that worked for everybody and, in fact, really simply wanted a small government that would let a cowboy work hard, uh, dominate the people around him, and rise to prosperity. And that symbol of the American cowboy is, of course, one of the most popular symbols ever in American history. So the ideology of that uh, elite white South from before the Civil War, that some people got to rule over others, lived quite naturally in the American West. And from there, that ideology came to dominate the, the, the rest of the United States, largely in the 20th century, as the West and the South began to work together as a political body. So it's not just winning militarily, it's winning ideologically as well. And, and one can win militarily and lose ideologically, so it seems. In case I would argue that winning ideologically is everything. Yeah. That, you know, because I'm an idealist. That's what I believe in, is I believe that ideas change societies. And, and this is one of the reasons I'm always saying to people to take up oxygen, because if you can change minds, the rest comes. If you, if you can't change minds, it does not matter how many victories you have because you can only um, maintain those victories through the use of violence. Gosh, I'm sensing a little bit of optimism here. My goodness, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. I'm pleased to say our guest today is author Professor Heather Cox Richardson, professor of American history who uh, writes a uh, daily newsletter called Letters from an American and has a brand new book, Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America. And we're talking a little history here. And we've had 46 presidents now, uh, and among the most influential over the scope of our history, I, th I think it's safe to say, are FDR and Ronald Reagan. I mean, out of 46. But to my thinking, Reagan's unique power grew out of what you were talking about, the myth of the cowboy riding high in the saddle. He perfectly played. He was a good actor, I guess. Played the myth of the rugged individualist. How did the cowboy become the effective propagandist for those standing against Franklin Roosevelt's liberal consensus uh, of the 50s and 60s, because that's when the, the cowboy thing was really happening, aimed at my generation. 
you know, I'm I'm over here, you know, absolutely loving this conversation because isn't history cool? Oh, I love it. You know, <laughs> you know? aside from anything else, it's like you're talking about cowboys and you're talking about Ronald Reagan and you're talking about FDR and you're talking about all these wonderful storylines that have made us who we are. Um, so that you, we're very much in my happy place. You know, so, so it's not an accident that the cowboy, as I say, becomes such an important cultural figure in the period after the Civil War because he represents in that era beginning in 1866 when we have the first successful cattle drive out of the American South or out of Texas, uh, the American South slash West uh, with um, Charles Goodnight and Oliver Loving. Um, which is how we get the the, the um, good night loving trail, by the way. Um, the that first successful cattle drive in '66 is the, marks the beginning of the cattle industry, but it's only going to exist for about 20 years until overgrazing on the plains and a terrible storm mm. uh, really destroys a lot of the western herds. But that image of the the era as one of the American cowboy is quite deliberately highlighted, especially in anti-government democratic literature in the period after the Civil War because of this. The cowboy to them becomes the symbol of the quintessential American man, even though, as mm. I say, it's a myth. You know, a right. third of the cowboys are men of color. They, in fact, need the government terribly to, to, to market their cattle, all sorts of things. Yeah. But they use it to stand against the idea of a government that protects the rights of African Americans, which by 1871 they are calling socialism. Now, this is long before we get the rise of Bolshevism, for example, in the Soviet Union in 1917. This is really early. 1871, Southern Democrats begin to say, hey, we didn't fight the Civil War over slavery. That's ridiculous, which, of course, it is not ridiculous. That's exactly why they fought the Civil War, and they said so at the time in crucial documents. But they say what we really were concerned about was a large government that was going to take tax dollars. And if you look at the fact that the government that is protecting black rights can only do so by having troops stationed in the American South, that costs tax dollars. And therefore, what you're really doing by protecting black rights is redistributing wealth from hardworking white men to undeserving black men. And that, they're mostly talking about men in this period. Yeah. And that is the definition in their minds of socialism. So a cowboy stands against socialism. Now, fast forward, the image of the cowboy was actually fascinating, and we could keep on talking about it through the period after that. But if you fast forward until the 1950s, something crucially important happens in the 1950s. So in the 1940s, during World War II, in fact, we don't focus on the cowboy. We don't have cowboy movies in Hollywood during the during World oh, War II. We have something very different. We have movies about wartime and movies about brotherhood and camaraderie and community. Something happens in the 1950s, and that is the Brown versus Board of Education decision of May 1954, in which the Supreme Court says that the federal government has a... a, a responsibility to stop segregation in public schools. And with that, the idea that the government is overreaching by protecting black rights and that that will cost tax dollars, a theme that really gets highlighted after Eisenhower sends the troops into Little Rock ah, Central High School hmm. in 18, 1957, what begins to stand against that is that old image of the American cowboy. So by the end of the 1950s and the beginning of the 1960s, I think it's there either eight or nine um, cowboy TV shows on television and things like Bonanza is the first television syndicated television show in color. It goes around the world. 
And that idea of the American as somebody who works on his own does not need that socialist government of course, has enormous teeth, not only because of the racial issues in, the American, uh, in, in America in the 1950s and the 1960s, but also because of the, the Cold War and America's struggle on a global scale against actual communism in places like the Soviet Union and in, in China. So that idea of the American cowboy begins in the 1860s as a stand against a government that works to protect the rights of black Americans. That has a special power in America in the 1950s and the 1960s, when communism and race uh, equality in the United States become entwined to the point where you have, for example, in 1963, bumper stickers uh, during the, the Old Miss crisis in which the John F. Kennedy administration is trying to protect the right of James Meredith to enroll in the University of Mississippi, you actually have bumper stickers that say the Castro brothers are in the White House. And of course, they're referring to the Castro brothers of Cuba who are communists. They are equating that with the Kennedys, both John F. Kennedy as president and Robert Kennedy as his attorney general in the White House, who are trying to protect desegregation. So it's this, this stew of, you know, people always say to me, well, is it race or is it the economy? And I'm like, it's both. Mm -hmm. The genius of the American reactionary movement in the United States after the Civil War is that it tied those two things together so they can be deployed at the same time. Wow. Yeah, I've, I've wondered. I know that the uh, Republican Party, ever since FDR, has been defined by, I mean, that's been their focus on undoing that stuff, the successful New Deal, uh, ever since. And uh, you explained it quite well in bringing uh, racism in there. Uh, <laughs> solidifies that uh, that uh, uh, action to move against uh, FDR and uh, what was... I, I think, you know, one of the best presidents we've ever had. Well, I'm showing my bias here, I suppose. <laughs> uh, today, we have many Americans. It, it, it does amaze me. You've seen it, I'm sure. People who waved the flag uh, powerfully, you know, enthusiastically, the American flag, as they clamor for authoritarianism, uh, which amazes me that somehow they can believe that they're being patriotic when it's really to me, very clearly anti-American, anti-democratic with a small d for sure. Uh, so how, what factors set the stage for this belief that patriotism uh, supports authoritarianism? It's amazing to me. So it really is astonishing, isn't it? But I think there are two things to identify here, and that is First of all, how do you get the rise of an authoritarian movement coming out of a democracy? Really? And that, you know, there's this wonderful book written in 1951 by Eric Hoffer called The True Believer. Oh, yes. Yeah, well, would you, would, you, would you back me up here that that's just a phenomenal study? Oh, of very important. Yes, absolutely. Go ahead. And what Hoffer says is, you know, everybody in the, 18, in the 1940s and the early 1950s was all worried about where Hitler came from or where Mussolini came from. And, and he said, stop it. 
we don't really need to think so much about where those people came from because there are Hitlers and Mussolinis in every era. Yes. The question is, why did people follow them? Which I think is a genius question, to be honest, right? So he started to look at why people are susceptible to an authoritarian. And he's not the only one, of course. More famously, Hannah Arendt is doing the same thing. And there's a number of people, George Orwell, Joseph Heller, all sorts of people taking a look at how you get a population that is primed to follow a strong man. And, and what Hoffer said was that you, you need to have a population that is disaffected, either economically or religiously or socially or culturally. They feel that they have fallen behind in society from where they previously were. And once you have created that society, you leave them open to, to a strong man who says, listen, I can take you back to where you used to be important. Mm-hmm. But but you need to follow me because I'm the only one who understands how to do that. And I will tell you that your problem is not, and you can fill in the blank here with any kind of policy that would answer the real concerns of those people. The, your problem is not that, the strong man will say. Your problem is those people. Those people. And who those people are doesn't matter. Right. Because what you're doing is you're, you're welding those disaffected people into a group of people who are willing to follow you to whatever end. Mm. And one of the ways that you take that population and turn it from a disaffected group into a movement is by engaging with it in acts of aggression against those people. Right. Because once you have instigated sort of low-level violence at first, first rhetorical violence and then low-level violence, what you've done is you have begun to, to weld those people into a movement. And once they have committed to you psychologically, once they have said, sure, you know, I'm going to go ahead and, you know, wear a, a polo shirt and carry a tiki torch, they are wedded to that movement and they are much riper for, for further radicalization. And it becomes harder and harder and harder to tear them away from that movement because in order to do so, you have to convince them that they were wrong all the way back to those initial baby steps. And that psychologically is extraordinarily difficult to do. So that, you know, what I just described there was uh, what has been the, the, the effect of Republican policies since 1981 with the hollowing out of the middle class and the concentration of wealth upward, there was, in fact, a construction of a group of people who felt that they had been dispossessed economically, and they were told that they had been dispossessed religiously as well and culturally and socially, which made them, you know, there for the picking of a a rising strongman. But the, the second piece there that you mentioned that I think is really important, and this is where actually the, the I started this interview by saying I discovered there was something in that original manuscript that turned out a very different book in the end. And that is what you just said, the idea that they are protecting democracy. Because if you remember the people who assaulted the U.S. Capitol in, on January right. 6, 2021, they were literally carrying, uh, you know, literally kept talking about 1776. They kept saying, you know, you know, 1776, Lauren Boebert's out there, uh, the re- representative from Colorado is out there talking about 1776. The, the Confederates did the same thing. And again, no accident that there was somebody carrying a Confederate flag into that capital. Yes. The Confederates did the same thing with the idea that they were returning the United States to its original principles. And that right there is a really authoritarian vision of history that serves authoritarians by saying, 
there was this perfect moment in the past. Mm-hmm. And I can take you back to it by following a group of laws that are divinely inspired or traditionally inspired. And all these people who are refusing to let me do that are standing against our true nation. So if you just cut them out of the vote, if you just put them in prison, if you just get them out of our body politic, we can get back to that perfect past. And it's not at all about what the past actually was, lo- was hmm. like. I always right. say to people, tell me exactly when it was perfect in the past. <laughs> like, you know, was there like a, a half an hour in, in the afternoon of February 19th, 20, you know, 1923? Because when was that perfect moment? There wasn't a perfect moment. What they are doing is they are manipulating that idea for present-day politics. And that's really important because that's not what democracy is about at all. Uh, and you're explaining so many different things, it, and people have wondered, uh, what, what, what is with this Trumpism? Why do people stick with it? And, uh, you know, talking about the other, there was, of course, the scary other of the welfare queen that, uh, that Reagan talked about. And then there's the scary other of the people, the uh, invasion from south of the border. It's those others and how that unites people. It's fascinating. You explain quite a bit. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is Heather Cox Richardson, professor of American history. She's got a daily newsletter called Letters from an American and a new book, Democracy Awakening Notes on the State of America. There's a lot to understand here. And uh, you seem to be, this is helpful stuff. And to me, it's exciting that people are interested in learning this history and trying to figure out, huh, how did we get here? Why is why is there Trumpism? And I have to tell you a little story here. My, my own faith in the decision-making of voters, I have to say, it was not bolstered when in the 1990s, I was in the New Hampshire State Senate and I was running for re-election. I was at a factory gate greeting workers as they came out. And a woman stopped for a second, looked me over and said, I like your smile. I'll vote for you. I wonder what percentage of voters are motivated by a candidate's positions on the issues Versus a simple, how do I feel about this candidate? Is this person likable? And what about that aspect of, uh, you know, our democratic uh, system right now? So I love that because what you identified there exactly was uh, a very deliberate move in American politics in the 1960s. And that, I think, speaks to the moment that we're in right now. That is... Coming out of World War II, the Democrats certainly believed in a government that, you know, uh, regulated business and provided mm-hmm. a basic social safety net and promoted infrastructure and protected civil rights, although the Democrats believed that less strongly in that era than Republicans did. Yeah. So Republicans really get on board under Eisenhower with what he calls his middle way. But that agrees with the Democrats that the government should do all those things with a much more serious helping of protecting civil rights. And that idea becomes so widely shared among both Democrats and Republicans that it becomes known as the liberal consensus. And there are whole books written about how, you know, Americans always have believed this. And this is really who we are, um, which is, is sort of a snapshot in time as we're, as we're uh, talking about snapshots in time. But What happens is it's so widely shared that in 1960, there's a very famous article written by a political scientist who says to politicians, listen, it's not really worth talking any longer about the the role of government and about democracy because we all believe it. Where, you know, everybody's on board. You can no longer motivate voters by telling them about how this is uh, 
you know, this is about democracy. And so what you really need to do is you need to nail together coalitions by saying that, you know, what you will do for that particular group of people in the coalition, the different groups of people in the coalition, under the rubric of the, the liberal consensus. And that's precisely what the parties did. With this exception, a group of people who hated the liberal consensus came in, recognized this, what was going on, and came in and said, we are going, in fact, to, to focus on um, the, this idea that a little guy is being crushed by this behemoth government that is using tax dollars to promote minority rights. And they, they called themselves conservatives. They became known later on as movement conservatives. And crucially, they, uh, they took over the Republican Party in 1964 when the Republican candidate, the frontrunner for the nomination that year, uh, crashed and burned because of an, Amer uh, an extramarital affair. Right. And instead... Barry Goldwater gets nominated in 64, and he really is the, the ringleader or, the, or the, the figurehead for this movement. And he talks about, you know, getting rid of uh, decisions of the Supreme Court that have protected civil rights, for example. And when he runs for office, he picks up his home state of Arizona and five of the deep southern states. Now, going forward in 68, the question is, what is what are the parties going to do? What, since Goldwater was nominated and, uh, and lost so dramatically, we have the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So in the next election, 1968, which way are the parties going to jump? And the, the Democrats end up going down the road of trying really to absorb a multicultural democracy into their party. And that's going to be fits and starts, and it's going to be quite messy, and we can talk about that. But for, for our purposes, right, you know, on the other side, the Republican Party decides to double down on the idea that Goldwater had pioneered the idea, not pioneered, had been the figurehead for, had, but the idea that the federal government should not, in fact, protect civil rights in the states. And that idea there in 68 was not terribly popular across the country. So what do they do? They very deliberately, and we have quotations about this because there was a reporter embedded in the, the Nixon campaign. They said, we have to stop appealing to people's brains. That takes work. You know, we have to stop making arguments. We need to appeal to their emotions. Emotions are much more easily roused. That's a quote, by the way. They're much more malleable that if you can just get people to vote based on their gut, we don't have to worry about the fact that our actual policies are not popular. And, of course, it wins. Nixon's elected in 1968, although more people vote for somebody other than him than vote for him. And that idea of appealing to people's gut, their emotions, rather than their their intellect becomes deeply embedded in the Republican Party going forward from there. Yes. And it, you know, obviously advertising had, uh, uh, ties into that on both sides, but that focus on trying to get people to vote their gut rather than vote their intellect comes out of that movement in 1960, gets, gets enshrined in 1968. And I would argue is maybe very much alive in certain parts of the American population, but I have been incredibly heartened by the number of people who say to me, wait a minute, can you explain more about how, you know, the new executive order on AI works? Or can you explain, you know, really in-depth questions yeah. about the government? And if you, if anybody's interested, actually, you can go on YouTube and watch the 1960 debate between Kennedy and Nixon. 
And you'll be shocked at the degree to which they are engaging in really deep arguments about the performance of certain committees in Congress, for example. It's really in-depth. And then by the time you get to 1968, you have the Nixon commercials that say, Nixon, vote like your whole world depended on it. And you think, really, in six years or in eight years, we went from, let's talk about what the committee on blah, blah, blah has done to vote like your whole world depends on it? You know, it's a really dramatic shift. Well, it really is advertising, the power of advertising and just product placement and and uh, people liking somebody. And I, I hear uh, in New Hampshire right now, we have a, a fairly intense uh, campaign for the Republican nomination for president going on. And Nikki Haley is doing particularly well, I think, because people like her. They just like her. She comes across as likable. And I, that, I don't know if there's anything else to it, but that's a significant factor. And... Go ahead. You know, I would be interested. I, I have not seen the breakdown of those polls, but I would also suggest that she being, um, I, I think, the only prominent woman running for office yes, yes. is much more distinguishable from all the men uh, who true. are somewhat generic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Old white men. I'm one of those. What can I tell you? <laughs> <laughs> well, they're not all old white men, but they're, you know, I, I could see somebody going, oh, yeah, I know who she is. I mean, name recognition uh-huh. really matters early on. Indeed. Well, moving from 1968 to 1971 was the Powell menu, and you write about that in the book. What has been the lasting effect on what Americans understand the word freedom to mean? As This Powell menu, people, memo, a lot of people don't understand or don't even know about this at all, but what about that? So the Powell memo was a memo written in 1971 by Lewis Powell as uh, when he was working for the, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And what it said was that the, the liberal consensus had taken over the United States and that people who opposed the liberal consensus, people like those who hired Powell from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, um, needed to focus much more clearly on attacking the idea of that liberal consensus in places like the media, the universities, think tanks, and especially in the law. And he lays out in this memo the different ways to do that. And that memo is accessible easily online if anybody wants to look for it. Um, And it's really interesting reading because you will see there the language that um, much of which still exists, the idea, for example, that uh, universities are hotbeds of what he would have called um, unacceptable liberal thinking. Uh, what they're really talking about there is the idea of replacing this this liberal consensus, this fact-based reality, and people choosing a direction for the government based on reality versus the idea of getting rid of that entire government that had been in place since 1933 and replacing it with something Mm. that had existed in 1920, in the 1920s, when the government had been quite deliberately handed over to big business, which is actually a really interesting story that we probably don't have time for. But, um, But the Powell memo suggested all these ways in which people who were interested in tearing down that liberal consensus, which had, for example, really dramatically narrowed the gap between the people at the bottom of the American economy and the people at the top of the American economy. So, for example, a worker at Ford versus a CEO of Ford during the the 19... 
during the period of liberal consensus in the 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 uh, that period, made the CEO made about eight times what an ordinary worker was, whereas now mm-hmm. it's, I think it's more than three hundred times. Right. So we're you know we've left that period of liberal consensus. But what the the Powell memo said is in order to get rid of that, these are the ways in which we should push think tanks. We should push. Um, the the media, we should push universities, and crucially, we should try and put our own people in legal positions, in judgeships, uh-huh. in order to decide the way we need them to decide. But what's really interesting, so that's very interesting, it certainly changes the way society works, and Lewis Powell, uh, Nixon then puts Lewis Powell on the Supreme Court. And that, I think, is an extraordinarily interesting moment, because Powell does not turn out to be a hard right justice. Because once he is on that Supreme Court and has to listen to real-world scenarios, he begins to moderate his stances really dramatically. And that's uh, that's a really important understanding I think you need to have about that Powell memo, is that it was an ideological position that when put by the same person up against reality, that person began to see many more shades of gray than the memo had originally set out. And yet, of course, a number of people grab hold of that Powell memo and work very hard to put it into place through new think tanks, through attacks on the media, through new media, through attacks on the academy, and of course, quite dramatically, Mm -hmm. through attacks on our judicial system. And it does seem that many people these days, when when the, the the word freedom just means freedom to do whatever the heck a corporation wants to do without regulations or any restrictions whatsoever. That's that's the definition of freedom for an awful lot of people. And we're seeing here in in 2023 at the moment, we're seeing a remarkable resurgence of the political power of labor unions. In his book, What It Took to Win, historian Michael Kazin said that history, the history of the last 150 years or so shows that Democrats win when Democrats hitch their, our wagon to movements. And as we all know, most of today's leading Democrats are remarkably skittish about upsetting their big money campaign funders. With this labor union movement, with, the, with they're doing quite well. Are Democrats today missing an opportunity by not championing the labor movement enough? So as we are speaking, yesterday right. was the tentative agreement between the UAW, the United Auto Workers, which actually includes more things than auto workers, but the UAW and um, the three big um, Right. Uh, automakers, Ford, uh, General Motors, and Stellantis. And it was a landmark uh, agreement. It yeah. has not yet been ratified by the workers, although there's expectation that it will be. They are going back to work uh, with the expectation that they will ratify the new contracts, um, which aren't only about wages. There's a lot of other stuff in them as well. So I think it might be a little bit too early to say that the Democratic Party has not tied itself to this, not least because uh, president Joe Biden, a Democrat, is the first mm. president ever to stand on a picket line. That was a really dramatic yeah, decision yeah. on his part to do it at the same time that the former President Trump sort of tried to straddle it by saying he was meeting with workers, but they were part of a non-unionized plant, and they were he was basically saying to workers, come with me and I'll get you a better deal. Mm. Of course, the unionized workers ended up with, uh, over four and a half years, a 33% raise. It's a little hard to imagine a better deal than that, yeah. including a number of other things as well. But I, but I would like to point out, although um, Dr. Kazin, who's a great historian, um, focuses a lot on the labor movement, one of the things that the Democrats did in the 1970s 
for a number of reasons, 1960s and 1970s, is they walked away in, in a way from all movements. And while we have labor movements, there are certainly many other ways to organize society around interests that are uh, representative of the people, but that are not focused on the economy, that they are focused on rights. So one of the things that the Democrats mm. have embraced wholeheartedly, and you can see how it has played out in the polls, is the right to abortion. You know, a, a recognized constitutional uh -huh. right that the Supreme Court overturned with the Dobbs versus Jackson women's health decision in June of 2022. That's huge. And if you look at the special elections about abortion rights that have been held since the overturning of Roe versus Wade, Democrats have outperformed by eight points. I mean, that's really astonishing. So there's, you know, you can also talk about the Black Lives Matter movement, the Me Too movement, the many ways in which society organizes itself, but not just around economic issues. There are certainly issues of gender and issues of race that are also extraordinarily powerful in our societies. And I would suggest that it's not just the Democrats that win when that happens, but society itself. So if you look, for example, and this would have been an organization that the Republicans would have picked up just as enthusiastically, perhaps more so than the Democrats, if you look at the Act that the Civil Rights Act is signed in 1965 and makes it through on a bipartisan basis through the Congress. That's truly astonishing at a time when essentially white men are the ones making all the decisions. And they do it not because they suddenly say, hey, here's a great idea. Let's go ahead and make sure black people get to vote. They do it because of the extraordinary community power behind the idea of making it, making uh, the enforcing the laws on the books, making sure that everybody has a right to have a say in their government. And that idea of, of ordinary people saying to their DJs, to their Congress people, to their school boards, to their governors, to their, you know, their local authorities, to the police officers, to anybody who will listen, we think that everybody should have a right to have a say in their government, was powerful enough that it got through things like the, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Then we have, of course, the problem that we assumed that it was going to stay in force, mm -hmm. Um, because of uh, you know it, the, the power we thought that that had, and it's been chipped away at ever since, quite dramatically under the John Roberts court. His yeah. own um, his own career was really predicated on the idea of getting rid of the Voting Rights Act. But that being said, the Democratic Party tying or the Republican Party tying itself to movements to increase rights rather than to decrease rights, which has always been what the reactionary parts of American society have tied themselves to, have tended to create wins for those parties, but also for the nation. And that really kind of looks like what's happening today with the expansion, not only of unionizing and union victories, but also of these other movements that are turning out people who previously had not really bothered to take up their, their piece of the, of the, the polity. Yeah, it's, it's, it's for sure true. And, you know, it's interesting how for a long time, uh, certain powers have tried to convince people in America that, oh, we're powerless, we can't do anything. And what you're talking about is we can, and it is making a difference, absolutely is making a difference. People's voices are heard, and they are making a difference. And again, for those who just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about Keeping Democracy Alive with our guest, Heather Cox Richardson, who's got a new book out, Democracy Awakening, Notes on the States of, State of America, and a daily newsletter called Letters from an American. Before we go too far, I have more questions, but how do people get your Letters from an American? 
it is available on Facebook. I usually post it on Facebook about uh, 20 minutes before I post it on Substack. It is on Substack at heathercoxrichardson.substack.com, and it is free. It is possible to pay for it so that I can have people answer my email, but um, but it is is and will always be free for people to get the information about what's happening in the country today and how it ties to history. Free. I like that. Um, one thing we have today that's very different from the past is the social media. People shoot from the hip. They make declaratory statements without research, it seems to me. Your thoughts about how social media has affected the perceived value of knowledge of history? Well, social media isn't what has begun to, to degrade the idea of people understanding what they're talking about. And that, too, I think, was a project of the movement conservatives. And I, I vividly remember um, in a, a famous Ronald Reagan speech, him talking uh, really derogatorily about a Harvard education and saying to people that you really didn't need to bother to get educated. And, of course, that right. links quite naturally with evangelicism in the present, especially mm. a certain kind of evangelicism, the idea that so long as you have a hotline to God, you don't actually need an education. That being said, um, so what social media has done, I think, is less to loose those voices. They've always been there. But to magnify them through the use of algorithms and through the use of bots and trolls. And one of the things that I'm very hopeful for, every time we get a new technology, everybody thinks it's going to save the world, yeah. and then all the bad actors jump in, and everyone thinks that new technology is going to destroy the world. And then we figure out how to use it. We regulate it in such a way that it helps the world. It doesn't solve all our problems, but it helps. And one of the things that you have seen in uh, the, the European Union since the fall is, first of all, uh, really much stricter rules about disinformation on the Internet. And uh, as we are talking just yesterday in the United States, the president and the vice president of the United States put forward an executive order really limiting what artificial intelligence can do. So, mm -hmm, for example, mm -hmm. you have to have a watermark on something that is artificial intelligence. And that's something yeah. that the EU is talking about as well and the protection of our own private information so that we can't be targeted as thoroughly as we have been with political disinformation. So you know, the, certainly there's a lot of crap out there right now, but the idea of bringing that crap under control is certainly out there, and I think one we absolutely should push, because I know from my own Facebook page that the, the number of fake bots and trolls who swarm us all the time, and I have a, virtually a full-time moderator who does nothing but get wow. rid of those people, that could, they're not people, they're not real, you right. can tell there's all sorts of hallmarks. Facebook could do that if it wanted to, but it doesn't want to because it likes those engagement numbers. And that's simply a question of putting pressure on Congress to say, come on, get rid of the algorithms, get rid of all the false stuff and give us the option of reclaiming our public square. And I think when we do that, we're still going to have that, you know, your uncle who's explaining to you, you know, how aliens are controlling postage stamps. And if you think I'm kidding, I actually was part of that conversation once at one point in my life, not with an uncle. We're still going to have those people, but we're no longer going to think they're a majority. We're going to recognize that they're still that small minority that they always were, and they've been artificially magnified by social media and by the, the false tools on social media. So I feel like we're at a point where we're starting to bring that, or at least have the potential to bring that 
that poison under control in such a way that it's beneficial, primarily beneficial as opposed to so destructive as it is right now. Informed optimism. Boy, I like that. Uh, finally, I got to ask, if you asked your voter, your average voter what democracy is and if saving democracy would motivate them to put the TV remote down and go out and vote, I wonder what we'd see. Uh, and I, I have to ask, your rather popular book, and I'm pleased that it is, is, is called uh, Democracy Awakening. Is it? That's the title, Democracy Awakening. Do you see signs that it is? There's a sunrise on the cover of that book, and yes, I do. You know, I think that one of the things that we have not done really since the 1960s when there was a push away from defining what democracy is and why it matters is reminding people of just what our heritage is. You know, when you say, will people be motivated to defend democracy, you know, I think about the idea of upholding the principles that Abraham Lincoln brought forward, mm -hmm. that we should have a government that is of the people, by the people, and for the people, and we should have a new birth of freedom in which people are treated equally before the law and have a right to a say in their government. Those are things that the American people care about, and they care about our great leaders, Fannie Lou Hamer and mm. people like Red Cloud, you know, people that you can identify with who fought to make those things become real. Now, they were none of them perfect. None of us are perfect because humans got human, right? But we have the, these principles and the ideas that they really matter because at the end of the day, American democracy is really about human self-determination and the idea that we get to determine our own futures. And do people care about that? I think absolutely they do. But they haven't understood for a long time that that was on the table because we thought that our democracy was so secure. And until we saw tanks in the streets, we didn't realize it was under threat. Now, as we watch the, the grasp of the far right taking over key nodes of our democracies in Republican-dominated states, for example, with extraordinary gerrymandering to the point that essentially they're one you know, places like North Carolina are essentially one-party states, despite the fact that the, the the electorate in North Carolina splits about 50-50. It's really a purple state, but the Republicans have managed to right. gerrymander it to the point that the Democrats can never win. If you look at that, you start to realize that, hey, this is really not about, you know, a Republican versus a Democrat. This is about whether or not we have the right to have a say in our government. And this is about American democracy and human self-determination. And I think people really do care about that. And I think they are turning out in extraordinary numbers, often in places that the, the more traditional media doesn't recognize that they're turning out, and they are stepping up to say, listen, we might disagree about immigration, and we might disagree about finances, and we might disagree about, you know, welfare programs, we might disagree about all those things, but by God, we can agree that we do not want to live in an authoritarian state, and we're going to band together to make sure that doesn't happen, and then once we've gotten over that hump, then we can argue about the rest, and if in fact we do that, we're going to find that we are following the footsteps of people in the 1890s who did the same things or people in the 1850s who did the same thing to take the American government back from a group, a small group of elite Southern enslavers who hmm. were attempting to impose an oligarchy in this country. So do I believe democracy is awakening? Absolutely. And I just feel incredibly lucky to be part of this movement. We all are incredibly lucky. And this is such a, a 
it's a good time and a bad time. The worst of times and the best of times. It's scary, but it's also hopeful, especially if you look at uh, at history. And uh, we can we we do have a voice. We can make it happen. People do care about uh, democracy. It's so good to hear that from your looking at the the research of what not just hopes and not just aspirations, but what's really happened and can be happening again. The book is titled Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America. Our guest has been Heather Cox Richardson. Thank you so much for being with us today and for injecting a bit of uh, optimism and uh, knowledge. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Democracy is coming to the U.S.A. It's coming through a hole in the air From those nights in Tiananmen Square It's coming from the feel that this ain't exactly real Or it's real, but it ain't exactly there From the war against disorder, from the sirens night and day From the fires of the homeless, from the ashes of the gay Democracy is coming to the USA If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.